you'd open your Bibles to the book of Judges, we will be beginning in Judges chapter 19, and we will finish the, the book this evening. So we've got three chapters ahead of us, but they're all related, so we're going to, to move through them. I can tell you that as a pastor, these are the three, I would like to skip over these three chapters. Sometimes the, the Bible has some things in there and you scratch your head and say, why is that there? Did we really need all that information? And uh, we have to trust that if God put it in there, it's for us to, to learn something from. So that's why we don't just skip over it. But I think tonight's message will be kind of PG-13, to say the least. Um, and I also, I think it's really cool, the Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't sugarcoat anybody's life. I mean, it makes perfectly clear that David was an adulterer, David was a murderer, but yet he was forgiven by God. And we see the shortcomings of Abraham, we see the shortcomings of uh, Solomon. We, we, you know, the Bible's very clear about the people that it, 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 it gives you the whole, the whole truth. It's not, it's not one-sided. It doesn't try to present somebody in a better light than they, than they really are. And even when it comes to the nation Israel here in the book of Judges, it's not trying to present them something as they're not. It's, it's giving us a very clear picture. And if you remember from our previous studies, the nation Israel has come into the promised land. They've been into the promised land for a while now. They've gone through a series of judges. And each time they turn away from God and turn back to following, uh, following false gods, turn back to their flesh, and they find themselves in captivity by their neighbors. Um, they, were, they were disobedient to the Lord when he told them to enter the land and wipe out the Canaanites. They were supposed to utterly wipe them out. They didn't. And now we find them struggling and battling. And this chapter that we're going to pick up in 19, this is very early on into their time into the promised land. We're going to read in chapter, in chapter 20, we'll find out that this is about the second generation into the promised land. So, uh, uh, Aaron's great-grandson would be involved in what's, going take, what's taking place here. And we're going to see the nation Israel, who was a nation who followed God, it only took them two generations to come to where they are now. Two generations is all it took. And let's pick up in chapter 19. It came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite straying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, before we go too far, notice it says there in the very beginning, there was no king in Israel, which means there was no authority in Israel. They had forsaken, they had turned away from God. There was no authority figure in them. And when people are left without authority, you'll find them doing exactly what the Israelites were doing, which is what they thought was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they thought they was right. If it feels good, do it. I can do whatever. Don't worry about what I'm doing. You just worry about yourself. Well, that's always a bad recipe for life because there needs to be an authority in our life. There's no authority in the nation of Israel here. And we see this man who's a Levite, who's supposed to be of the priestly tribe, a man of God. He takes for himself a concubine. What's a concubine? That sounds like a place, not a person, but it's actually a person. It's kind of a concubine is a it's a, a second-class wife, if you will. Uh, and that's kind of putting it nicely. You might say it's more of a personal prostitute, if you will. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a woman who was taken in by a man, and uh, he, he will then take care of her, but she's to provide and fulfill his needs, majority of them being sexual. 
Now understand something, this was agreed upon by the woman. It wasn't like she was forced into this. And oftentimes, back in that day, the women had very, very little value. They were seen more as property. So for a woman who didn't have a husband or a woman who didn't have a family to take care of her, this might be the best alternative for her because he was responsible for her. But nonetheless, she was kind of like a second-class wife, if you will. Not a position that anybody would really want to find themselves in, but we would kind of see something similar to that. A lot of times it was the wealthy people, wealthy men that had concubines, kings that had concubines. Um, Women would follow them. They they wanted to be close to the power or be close to the wealth. So they would sort of volunteer or make themselves available for, for this position. But it's also a position that I don't believe that God had ever intended for man to have. Because way back in the book of Genesis, He told us that a man and a woman were to leave their father and mother and cleave to one another and the two shall become one. And some people have even said that concubines were ordained by God. That God said it was okay because in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells them how to treat their concubines. But just because the book tells, the Bible tells them how to take care of something, how to treat something, it doesn't mean that God's saying that's okay. God permitted divorce too, even though that we know that God would hate divorce. So some scholars even said that, well, it was normal, and it's, over the years it stopped out, it, it's, it stopped, but they suggested that. I disagree with that. I don't think it was ever intended by God. Marriage was always meant to be between a man and a woman, and that's the way that God intended it. And they're supposed to leave their father and mother and cleave unto one another, and the two shall become one flesh. But these men would take concubines, and he did. He took this concubine. Verse 2, but his concubine played the harlot against him. And went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and, there, and was there for four whole months. So his concubine cheated on him. That's really what it comes down to. His concubine cheated on him, and then she left, and she went back to her father's house. Verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him, so that she brought him into her father's house. And when, she, when, the, when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. So it's kind of a strange situation. This man has a concubine, this Levite, this of the tribe of Levi, has a, has a woman who's a concubine. She, uh, some, some scholars suggest that she didn't actually cheat on him. She was really mad at him. He did, so, he did something to make her mad. That's why he's going to try to bring her back. So whichever position you take, it, it doesn't really make a difference. But he's going to meet her and try to bring her back. And the father receives him well. He, she, he wants to try to reconcile the relationship between the two. So we continue on here. Verse 4, And the father-in-law, now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stays with him three days. So they ate and they drank and they lodged. And it came to pass on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterward go your way. They sat down and the two of them ate and they drank together. The young woman's father said to the man, please be content to stay all night. Let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart, but the young woman's father said, please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. When the man stood up to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, look... The day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here. That your heart may be merry tomorrow. Go on your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he arose and he departed and he came to the opposite 
came to opposite Jebus, which is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys, his concubine. There was also with him. So the man goes back to get this woman back, and her father entertains him. Her father likes him. She, he tries to stay three days and ends up staying five days. He stays a, stays a few extra days, and he's trying to leave, and the, and the father-in-law says, no, stay, stay another day. Oh, it's going to get late. Just stay one more time, one more meal. Let's just, just hang out together a little bit. And uh, we have a hard time with that sometimes, but there's something that you need to understand. Hospitality was really big in that culture. It still is in the Middle East. It's, if, if you were to go visit somebody, they, they want to be very hospitable. They want to open their home to you. Where here, we tend to be very kind of closed off, and we don't really want to open our home and let people come inside, especially people that we don't really know that well. But, but the father's here working on this relationship. Now, remember, they're not supposed to have concubines. I don't believe they are. And he's got this woman, and he's on his way. He finally leaves. He's heading back home. They come near Jebus, and it's, which was actually Jerusalem, but it doesn't become under Jewish control until King David. And the Jebusites were in control there. That's why it's called Jebus. Now, verse, uh, verse 11. So they were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. The servant said to the master, Come, please let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. Let's stay here, the servant says. Let's not go any further. Look, it's getting kind of late. It's not very safe out here. There's robbers. We could get robbed. We could get hurt. We could get killed. Let's just turn here and stay with the Jebusites. And the man says, and they pass by, uh, where did I leave off? 12. But his master said to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We, go, we will go on to Gibeah. You see, as an Israelite, when you traveled through their promised land, you were family. If you were to go into a city, an Israelite city, you didn't, there was no hotels or motels. They would recognize that you're, you're, you're a member of which tribe, and then you, they would bring you into their home. You didn't need to find a place to stay. You could travel from city to city. When you would show up in the city gates or the city square, they would, they would bring you in and they would lodge you for basically free. They would take care of your animals. They would take care of those things for you. Um, so he's, he says, no, no, we're not going into Jerusalem where the Jebusites are. We're going on to stay with family. We're going to move on a little bit farther. Uh, so verse 13, so he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. In verse 14, they passed by and went their way and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So it's getting late. They have to find a place to stay. They're, in, they're near Gibeah, which is of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 15, they turned aside there to go into lodge at Gibeah. When he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take him into his house to spend the night. So here's this guy. He's traveling. He makes the decision, let's not go into Jerusalem or, or uh, Jebus, which were where the Jebusites were. Let's go on a little farther. Let's stay with family. Let's stay with Israelites. And then here he is in the city gate, in the city courtyard, looking for a place to stay, and nobody will take him in. He's got nowhere to go. He's going to spend the night outside, which probably wasn't safe either. No one's taking him in. And look, verse 16, just then an old man came in from his work in the field in evening, so was who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? So he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem to Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I'm going to the house of the Lord. But there was no one who will take me into his house. 
Although we would have both straw and fodder, that's food, food for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servants and for the young man, young man who was with your servant. There is no lack of anything. So he's saying that I have everything I need. I have food. I'm not asking for anything. The old man said, peace be with you. However, let all of your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and he gave fodder to the donkeys and they, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So the man brings him into his home. He shows him the hospitality. He brings him in, takes care of his animals, and they're beginning to eat and drink. Now, thanks for bearing with that part. There's not a whole lot going on, but it's going to get real interesting here. Verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Don't commit this outrage, he says. So here they are, they're in the home, they're drinking and they're eating and they're being merry, and all of a sudden the men, some men from the city, come and they surround the house. Now, it could be more like a tent. It's not a house like we would think of as a house. But they surround the house. They say, hey, bring your guest out. We want, to, we want to know him carnally. What does that mean? Just what you think it means. They want to have sexual relationships with them. These aren't Canaanites. This is the Israelites. This is how far they've gone in just two generations. They've gone into this. They're saying, we want to know him carnally. Bring him out. We want to know him. Now, the owner of the house says, no, no, guys, you can't stop acting so wickedly. You see, when you would bring someone in under your house, you were responsible for them. You were responsible for their safety. I find it horrible that in just this short time, this nation called Israel, which is supposed to mean governed by God, you see, they had an authority in their life. They just didn't recognize him. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were serving themselves rather than serving the Creator. They find this, this is terrible going on in this city. It's, it's repulsive that it's taken place. This is, this, you think we live in bad times. Really, you think, that you think, you think, home, you think the, homo, the, the homosexual culture is something new? It's not new. It's nothing new. But it's very clear here. The Lord's saying, or, or the, 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 what's, what's taking place here? But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act wickedly. See, this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Now here's the crazy part. Look at verse 24. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do, not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So here's what's taking place. The master of the house goes, wait, wait, no, no, don't do this, guys. This is wrong. But here, take my virgin daughter. How far have they come? How low have they come? The guy that's supposed to be right here, that's protecting him, says, here, take my virgin And take his concubine, by the way. Take them. No, just go. Just don't, just don't hurt us. Just don't hurt us. Listen. 
When you choose to have no authority in your life and you choose to serve the flesh, it will take you very low very quickly. Sin will take you places you never wanted to go. It really will. This is a picture of a country, of a nation that God built inside of Egypt, carried them through the wilderness, brought them into a promised land, gave them houses they didn't build, gave them uh, olive, olive gardens that they didn't plant, gave them all this stuff from this other people who were living sinful lifestyles, and now here they are falling in the very same lifestyle because they refused to obey God. They refused to have an authority in their life that said, this is right, this is wrong. This is what I do, this is what I don't do. Do we have an authority in our life? Do we? That's the question we have to ask. This is where we'll go if we don't have an authority in our life. The authority in our life is not a person. It's not a king. It's God. And God wrote a book. It's called the Bible. That's how we get right and wrong. We can try to manipulate it. We can try to change it. We can try to say whatever we want to make it say to fit our modern culture. But the truth is, God's told us what's right and what's wrong in our life. Now, I think it's sad that the, the culture, that the nation has come to this. This is, this, Israel was chosen by God to represent God to the rest of the world. They were supposed to say, look at our God. Look how great he is. Look what he's done for us. And now they've just compromised. They've meshed in and they've mixed in with the culture of the day. And now they're just like everybody else. They're no longer standing apart, standing for the Lord. There's just, well, we're just, we, just, we just don't do that. You know, it's, that, that, that was back then. We're two generations ahead. You know, they need to get, get, get with the times. No. Apart from God, there's no telling how low that one will travel or one will go when you become the own authority in your life. Verse 25, the men that had surrounded the house, they wouldn't heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. They knew her, abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was drawing and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning, he opened the doors of the house and he went out to go his way. There was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. She was dead. She was dead. He's sleeping. He gets up, gets ready, packs all his stuff and then finds her. There's no rush. To, I wonder, is she okay? What happened to her? Where is she? There's no rush. This, this is, this is, who's worse here? Sometimes we have a tendency to look and we could look at the here, here's the, here's the, here's the problem that we need to see. Everybody in this story is wrong. Everybody in this story is living in sin. That's the problem. Whether it be the man with the concubine, whether it be the owner who's giving away his daughter, who's trying to give away his virgin daughter, and the men that are coming after him. This, 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 this culture is horrible. Everybody's involved, but you might have a tendency to look and say, well, I'm not as bad as they are, they're not as bad as I am. They're all living just, just horrible. So she's dead. Is that not sad that he could just throw her out of the house? And they abused her all night. I'm not going to go into 
just uh, makes me mad. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and he went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. So it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. He takes her home, puts her on the donkey, takes her home, cuts her up, and sends her to all the 12 tribes of Israel. A piece. Why would he do such a thing? Why did he do this? Because he wants them to be outraged at what's taking place in, with, within their nation of Israel. He wants them to be outraged. So he sends them a telegram, a package, if you will, and they get upset, and now, they're, now they're, they're going to get together to try to figure out what to do about this. This, this tribe, this city, this, this tribe of Israel that has turned from the Lord, and they've turned to sin. The man sends it out, and he says something interesting. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Now, here's what I want to point out to you. This is one sinful man looking at another sinful group and pointing a finger at him. Look what they did. Look what they did to my concubine. Shouldn't the, you just shouldn't have a concubine in the first place. Shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. But he's trying to evoke their emotions. He wants to get them all riled up. He wants to get them all fired up. Look what they did. Look how bad. I'm not so bad. I just have a concubine. We all have concubines, right? Come on, you guys know what it's like. But look, they, look what they did. They killed my concubine. And he sends it out. They get fired up. He says, I want you to consider it, confer, and speak up. Do you think somebody who's brokenhearted could do something like that? I don't think so. I don't think so. This woman didn't mean anything to him. She was a possession of his. And he's mad that she's gone. So he sends him, sends him out. And look at verse chapter 20. The children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mitzpah. And the leaders of all the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew to the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, And the children of Israel said, tell us, how did the wicked, this wicked deed happen? So let me, under, let me just, so there's a gathering. These, this telegram, these packages go out and it's not like they had overnight mail then. I'm sure when they got it, it wasn't exactly a fresh body part. Then they have this gathering. They all gather. They're going to do, we have to do something about this. This is horrible. This sin is terrible. All the while neglecting the sin that's going on in their own lives, in their own culture, in their own country, in their own homes. Now they're going to attack what's taken place in the tribe of Benjamin. Get together. What should we do? Benjamin heard about it. They didn't come up. They said, tell us what happened. Tell us how this wicked deed happened. In verse 4, the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, and answered and said, my concubine and I went to Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. 
And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, I cut her in pieces, sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So he tells them the story. And then he says, give your advice and your counsel here now. Remember, or notice, they're not seeking the Lord. They're not seeking God. What do we do? We can't tolerate this sin. We can't tolerate that. Let's all gang up on them. We're going to do something about this problem. As Christians, can we see, do we see that happening in the world today? I'm going to say that we do. I'm going to say that we see it right now in our life when it comes to the homosexual culture in our communities, in our families, in our homes that they're around. We have a tendency to want to gang up and say, look, not ever looking at what's going on in my own life. It's easy to point out the problem for somebody else. They've evoked this emotion. They've evoked this outrage. They've evoked this, we've got 400,000 men together. We're going to do something about this problem. We're not seeking God. Not yet they're not. We're not seeking God. We're going to fix this problem. We're going to make them pay for two things. For killing the concubine and for not showing hospitality like they should have. For being wicked. Give your advice and your counsel here and now. So the people arose and one man, as one man saying, none of us will go back to his tent, no one will turn back to his house, but now this, will, this is the thing which will go to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people, that when they come to Gibeah at Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. They're not seeking God, they're seeking man. They're looking for an emotional reaction because of the greatness of sin, and now they're going to give revenge. We want to repay them. We're going to repay them. We're going to give them revenge. That's what happens when there's no authority in your life. That's what happens when you can't say, Lord, will you handle this? Lord, will you you do something about this? There's no authority. We're going to give revenge for the vileness. So all the men of Israel were gathered together against the city, united together as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? So they want to communicate. There's a talk going on now. Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. You see, they want to remove the evil from Israel, but they want to remove it from somebody else's house. They're not interested in removing it from their own house. They're not interested in looking at their own life. Lord, where's the evil in my life? I want to remove the evil out of your life. That'll always lead to a confrontation. It'll always lead to a confrontation. If I begin to try to remove, I can't make you holy. You can't make me holy. If I try it, we're going to have a battle. If you try it, we're going to have a battle. The focus should be on their own lives. So they send some messengers to try to talk to him and say, hey, just give us the perverted men. Give us these guys. Verse 14, instead the children of Israel, the children of Benjamin, rather, gathered together from, this, from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. 
From their cities at the time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew near, who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So what's taking place is they say to Benjamin, hey, give us the guys. Just turn over the evil guys. Turn them over to us. We'll take care of them. What's Benjamin say? Uh-uh. You want to go to war? We'll go to war. You want to fight? We'll fight. You want to, you want to do battle? We'll do battle. People will resist and fight for their sin. People will die for their sin. They're willing to go to battle for their sin. You're not taking this away from us. You're not changing us. Isn't it sad that now it's a family battle taking place? This is two tribes of Israel doing war. Just two generations into the promised land. Moses said, I set before you a blessing and a cursing. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. And that's what we see falling out here. Then the children of Israel rose and went to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. After it didn't work out in the communication part, which they probably fully intended them to turn them over the vile men, now they decide we're going up to the house of God. We're going up to the house of God. And I want you to notice their question to God. The question says, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? I want to share something with you that I've found out, and I believe this with all my heart. There is the permissive will of God and the perfect will of God. The permissive will of God is when God will allow you to do what you want to do. But it's not necessarily the perfect will of God. Their question was, which one goes up first? What should their question have been? Lord, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Do you want us to go to battle? Do you want us to retreat? Lord, here we are waiting on you. What do you want us to do? God says, all right, well, you're going to battle anyway, so send Judah first. And I think that permissive will of God can happen in our life as well if we're not careful. If you ask God for something long enough, he just might give it to you. And it doesn't mean it's good for you. But there's also the perfect will of God, which is where we stand before the Lord and we say, Lord, what do you want from us? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to work? Where do you want me to live? Where do you want me to go to church? Where do you want me to be part? What, 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 here's my life. It's a surrendered life. It's, Lord, Lord, I want your perfect will in my life. Because oftentimes we can find ourselves asking the Lord to bless our will. And we're really not seeking his will. I don't believe they're really seeking the Lord's will here. They're out for what? Revenge. They're looking for revenge. They want payment. They want payback. And so rather than saying to the Lord, Lord, what do you want us to do? They say, Lord, who do we send up first? He says, well, send Judah up. Send them up. Look what happens to Judah. So the children of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. And the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah. And on that day, cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the, people that, and the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. They lost the first day. They lost 22,000 of their 400,000. The other side only had, what, 26,000? They just lost 22,000 men in one day. And again, they come to the Lord. 
children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for the battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? Their question is getting a little better. Shall I again? Should we do this again, Lord? The Lord said, Go on, go up against them. Verse 24, the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah to the ground. And Hold on a second, I got lost. And Benjamin went out from against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. Day two didn't turn out very much better than day one. Now look what happens between day two and day three. Verse 26, then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, everybody now comes to, went up and they came to the house of God and they wept. They sat before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Do you notice something different there? Everybody came up. They're fasting before the Lord. They're sacrificing before the Lord. Isn't that the prescribed method the Lord had given them? That's what they were supposed to do. You want to meet with me, you follow the prescribed method I've given you. Back in that day. Now they're doing it. They're weeping. The children of Israel inquired of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant of the God, uh, the Ark of the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, Aaron, that was Moses' brother stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? Finally, they come before the Lord with the prescribed method. They come before the Lord with the offerings that He's required. They come before the Lord with the repentant heart because of their weeping. They come before the Lord rejecting their flesh as a result of their fasting. And they say, Lord, now what do you want us to do? It's a beautiful picture. Because so often we can ask the Lord to bless whatever it is we have on our mind and what we want to do. But here's the heart that he's looking for. Lord, what do you want us to do next? We're done. We're done. We lost 22,000 the first day. We lost 18,000 the next day. We're weeping. We're fasting. Lord, what is it that you want us to do? And now look what he says. The Lord said, go up for tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hands. Then Israel sent men in ambush and all around Gibeah. Skip down to verse 35. You can read the battle plan at home if you want. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. The children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. The men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and they struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men of ambush, what they had done is they had split. They were going to draw the men of Benjamin, of Gibeah. They were going to draw them away from their city. There was going to be a whole other group of men that when they came away, they were going to sneak into the city and burn the city. And that's exactly what takes place. I'm not going to read it all. You can read it at home. But what takes place as the men of Gibeah, as the tribe of Benjamin, as they begin to move away, they begin to attack the Israelites. The other tribe sneaks around and lights their city on fire. They turn back and they see the smoke and they realize they've been defeated. And so the, the Israelites have victory over the Benjamites, over Gibeah. Verse 46, so all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. 
But 600 men, 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness of the rock of Ramon. And they stayed in the rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city. Men and beasts, all who were found, they also set fire to the cities they came to. The men of Benjamin have now been killed, but not all of them. There are 600 that are left. There are 600 that fled into the, into the, sea, fled into the mountains of Ramon. So there are 600 that fled. Now, when you read this, do you think it had to happen this way? Isn't it kind of even a, isn't it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? These are, these are brothers, or these are, this is a family that's taking place. And it, it, it sort of grieves my heart that people of the Lord, because that's what they were supposed to be, can get so far from the Lord that the sin in their life can cause them to fight and to battle and to kill one another. Literally. This is the same group that band together to take the promised land. They were on the same team a few generations earlier. And now they find themselves at battle and the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely gone. The whole tribe of the nation. Almost completely gone. There's 600 people left. And it bothers me the fact that the Israelites as a whole were told they had no authority in their life. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet they took it upon themselves to try to stomp out the sin in the life of somebody else. And I think that we as Christians today need to be really careful when we're going to do that in somebody else's life. I think it's important that we look a lot harder inward than we do outward. Because the truth is, I can find sin in somebody's life pretty easily, can't we? You don't, have to, you don't have to know somebody very well before you can find some things that they're doing wrong, whether it be an attitude, whether it be a thought, whatever it is. If you don't think that I sin, ask my wife. She'll tell you. Because I sin like you guys. Now, the Lord has matured me a lot in my Christian walk. But I think sometimes Christians have this idea they get this righteousness about them that they need to point out everybody else's faults. I don't think we ever want to be that way. I don't think we ever want to go after vengeance. I don't think that we ever want to repay, even if we've been wronged by somebody. I scratch my head at the whole story on why it's even there. I mean, it's just it's kind of, kind of crude and kind of violent, but it's here. Now, what took place while this was happening is the sons of Israel had taken a vow. They made a promise to God, we're not going to give any of the Benjamites, we're not going to give them our daughters for wives. So let's look at verse 21, or chapter 21, and we'll move through that pretty quickly. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mitzpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. People came to the house of God, remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel 
that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel. They're upset. It's hitting home. Part of our family is now removed. So it was the next morning the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Children of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up for the assemblies of the Lord? They ask a question. Wait a minute. We called an assembly. Who didn't come up? Somebody must not have shown up. Who didn't come up? For they made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord of Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. Children of Israel grieved of Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for the wives, for those who remain? Seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives. So they're recognizing the fact there's a few of the Benjamites that are remaining, but they don't have, they don't, they're not, there's no wives for them. We, they already made a promise to God that they won't give them their wives. Then they said, what one is there from the tribe of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah, to the Lord? In fact, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. Jabesh Gilead, remember where Jabesh Gilead, that, that's back over on the east side of the Jordan River. That would have been the tribe of, uh, more than likely part of the tribe of Dan. I'm sorry, not Dan, Gad, on Gad, for the tribe of Gad. For when the people were counted, indeed one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was, wasn't there, was there. So the congregation sent out their 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, go and strike the inhabitants. Verse 10, so the congregation sent out their 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. The whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were in the rock of Ramon. They were hiding and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time, they were, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet they had not found enough for them. So they get this brilliant idea. Notice there's nowhere in here where they're seeking the Lord, right? They're not seeking God. Hey, wait a minute. We got 600 people that have fled to the mountains from Benjamin. But that tribe from Jabesh Gilead, they didn't come up. So let's go wipe them out and we'll take their virgin daughters and we'll give them to this group over here. But when they did that, well, they ran out of women. There wasn't enough. Do you see how far they've come from the Lord? Do you see how barbaric they've become? There's no authority. There's nothing in their life. They're just, they're, every man's left to do what he thinks is right in his own eyes. They've even made a promise to God. We won't give them our women. We're going to have to go get somebody else's women for them. So they go and they wipe out the whole, tr- the whole area, and they take the women and they give them. But there's a short. And verse 15, the people grieve for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for the wives of those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we can't give them our wives from our daughters for the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. So understand something here. There's this concern for the nation or for the the tribe of Benjamin. We can't give them our daughters because we promised that we wouldn't. Anybody that does is going to be cursed. But wait till you see what they do. Look at this. Then they said, in fact, there's a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh. 
There's the feast of the Lord, okay? Which is north of Bethel, up on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel and Shechem and south of Lebanon. Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. Did you catch? Listen, guys, here's, I know you're short on wives, so I've got a way for you to get wives, okay? I want you to go wait for the feast. Everyone's going to come up to see the Lord. And when the women of Shiloh, the daughters of Shiloh, come out and they start dancing, you just go kidnap one. Just go kidnap one and take them for yourself. Take her for yourself and make her your wife. That way, they're not giving them to you so they're not cursed. If you just take them, then they, they don't have to worry about being cursed. Do you see how warped the mind can get? Is that not ridiculous? It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Remember, there's no authority in their life, and every man does what's right in his own eyes. This is where it's brought them. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain, of course they're going to complain, you took our daughters, that we will say to them, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it's not as if, though, you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. You didn't give them away. They took them, so therefore you're not guilty of your oath. Children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. And they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities, and they dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We live in a very similar culture where everybody has a tendency or has this idea that we can do what's right in our own eyes. The Bible says don't do it that way. Don't live that way. This is where it will lead you. If you look at these three chapters that we covered tonight. I know we covered a lot, a lot more than we usually do. But you look at those three chapters. If that doesn't make you scratch your head, how did they get there? How did they get that way? They forsook God. They forsook God. They, they failed to follow the law of God. They failed to worship in the prescribed manner. They failed to, to be, be, they just forsook him. He became their puppet, their genie. God, will we do this in war? Will we do that in war? They never, God became somebody who was going to Lord, will you bless us in what we want to do? It wasn't, God, we want what you want. It was when things got tough, wasn't it? When they lost 22,000, 18,000, Lord, we want what you want. But then when they come right back to it, they say, well, you don't have enough daughters. Just go steal them. Just go ahead and take them. Just take them. Absolutely insane. And while we can look as Christians today and say, oh, we would never do anything like that. It happens around the world. Women are still treated like that around the world. They really are. We live in a, in a country where we're, we have freedom right now. But while as appalled as we can get, there's a lot of countries where women are still treated just like that. A lot. If we don't establish the Lord as the authority in our life now, Compromise will seep in from all sides. 
It doesn't mean we're ever going to be perfect. It means we're forgiven. We have the blood of Jesus Christ. It means we'll always stand for what's right and what's wrong. We'll call wrong. It means we'll see sin and we'll acknowledge it as sin. It doesn't mean that we have to point it out in everybody's life. The Holy Spirit's already doing that. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. I don't need to go around and point out the sin in your life. And you don't need to do it in my life. We don't need to go to our friends and our family and do it that way. The Lord's doing that. Now, there are times with a brother or a sister where you do need to say something to them. When someone claims to be following the Lord Jesus Christ and you see a direct conflict with what the Scripture says, I think after much prayer, after much prayer, lots of prayer, it's okay for you to go to them and say, listen, I see you're living in a compromise. I see there's something in your life that doesn't line up with the Scriptures. I want to help you get through that. I want to help you with that. But it doesn't mean we completely turn our back on somebody. But the Scriptures don't tell us, after a certain amount of time, stay away from them. This all started, all of this, with the whole, they came to this place in Judges because they began to mix with the people. They began to compromise. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. Be careful. Be careful that we don't compromise the truth of God's Word. Because there's coming a day, perhaps in this country, where we won't be free to speak the truth of God's Word. Like there are, like there are places in the world today. When that day comes, will you still stand on truth? Or will you compromise? I pray that we will always stand on the truth of God's word. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. And Lord, we look at this, these three chapters and it just blows our mind that people could even act like this. And, and be representative of you. Lord, we just, it, it just, I, I can't even fathom that they would behave like this. I don't even know why it's in here, Lord, but I understand that you wanted to show us without the authority this is where it can lead and none of us are exempt from this Lord if we have any compromise in our life let's not look for somebody else's but may we look into our own heart Lord may you show us if there is a place of compromise may we repent Lord before you Thanks for your word and your truth, Lord. As we continue to study, we continue to learn, would you continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit and change us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.